Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of VTV. I'm sorry, V Radio. <laughs> old habit from my old uh, radio TV show that I used to do on the internet. Um, this show is kind of impromptu, and uh, it's in response to something actually that came up recently on the Zeitgeist forums. Uh, more specifically, it was a thread that was called um, the Zeitgeist Orientation Presentation Criticized or something to that effect. And uh, one of my previous shows, they asked me um, if I had read the thread yet, and I told them I would get back to them on that. I hadn't done it yet. Um, but now I have, so um, essentially what I'm going to be doing in this show is um, refuting, or maybe just going on and refuting what it is that I had you know, seen in their videos that the guy had linked. Uh, a couple of kids on YouTube um, obviously read some books about Austrian economics. One of them had a Ron Paul t-shirt on. Um, so... One of the first things that they did in their video was they recommended a book. Uh, the book is called, um, I'm sorry, one second. I, like I said, this is a bit impromptu, so I didn't get a chance to prepare as much as I normally would. At least you only have to suffer through it for one hour this time. Uh, economics in one lesson. Uh, today, I spent most of the day you know, familiarizing myself with this book. Um, it is obviously a free market-based book. And uh, the reason that this came up even more so is I started to debate with these kids on YouTube um, in their comments. And um, they, you know, I said, you know, why don't you tackle the issue of cyclical consumption he said, you know, and the idea of technological unemployment, and he said, well, that's why I recommended the book, because this book, you know, deals with this situation. So I went and found the book on PDF, and uh, I looked it over all day, pretty much. I spent like three hours writing my thing out the first time, and then my internet ate it uh, when I tried to submit it, so I had to spend another three hours writing it all over again, completely from scratch, after getting back from the store. So, <laughs> it represented an awful lot of hair pulling, but um, by the time I was finished, I had um, made sure to uh, get that all finished and out there for you. I'm going to post one more thread about this to bring people up to speed, and uh, then we will get started with me reading this post. Now, the reason that I'm going ahead and um, putting up this post is because of the fact that... Uh, um, I know some people are not going to want to read the thread. The thread is very detailed. Um, it goes on for quite some time because I am analyzing an entire chapter of a book. Sorry about this. Let me call this. Debunking the debunkers. All right. I apologize once again for the pauses. Welcome to the price of free. Now, 
as I was saying, let's see, I did open up the chat as far as I know uh, for the show. Um, the call-in line is also available uh, for those of you who want to call in and comment on this, maybe even perhaps since I know they were reading it, the two fellows who uh, um, caused all this you know, in the first place might be interested in debating me on the show at some point. I know they were uh, very interested in my opinion as far as to how I was going to debunk this book. It's pretty evident to me that they were obviously very devoted to it. But um, Now, let me go back to... Uh, oh, you know what? I might have provided the wrong link. Yay. Anyway, let me go back to... Uh, Let's post, and I will pause that because you guys don't need to hear it. And then I will get down to business. I apologize again for all these delays, but I kind of just decided to do this at the last minute. And here we go. Edit. going to delete this, and we'll be good to go. So, anyway, as I was saying, I spent a lot of time working on this today, and um, I hope you all enjoy it. I'm going to get down to the business now. I'm going to go to the post, start reading it. Uh, critique of the book, Economics in One Lesson. Um, I linked the thread that it was originally brought up in. I uh, linked the video that was originally linked. Um, and I also provided a link to a PDF version of the book in question. So if you want to get more information on this, go to the Zeitgeist forums, go to the Venus Project section, and look up Critique of the Book, Economics in One Lesson, or essentially what amounts to the written format of what I'm getting ready to say, although inevitably I will probably end up also, you know, evaluating, or not evaluating, I'm elaborating on the point. So, you head on over here, set that up, and we're good to go. Okay. In later debates I had with this person in the comments in his various anti-zeitgeist pro-capitalism videos on YouTube, when I asked him why he never touches on the breakdown of cyclical consumption, caused by technological unemployment, a matter that most free market economists usually avoid like the plague because there is no solution to it in the Austrian system for reasons I will give later. He then said that is why he suggested the book. So I went to the book and looked up the author's attempt to debunk what Austrian economics, uh, economists call the fallacy that technology has an impact on unemployment and therefore causing poverty. What follows is my analysis and proof that not only does this book not represent any suggestions to solve the issue of technological unemployment as it exists now, that it is based on archaic notions that no longer apply. First of all, let me state that the free market economists <coughs> reject using the scientific method to analyze the economy. They reject the use of, the st of statistics, mathematics, and any form of collected data on the subject, claiming that there are far too many variables for any such data to be useful. So instead, they use what they call logical deductions, a fancy way of saying that they guess. 
As a libertarian and a former free market Austrian economist myself, I remember well what changed my mind and woke me to, up to the fact that this concept could not work anymore in our modern society. I will share some of that insight here. This book is basically an attempt to state that most main, what, I'm sorry, what most mainstream economists feel as fact is actually fallacy. In addition to other alleged fallacies, it talks about unemployment caused by technological advance, claiming that it is also a fallacy. Like, like most publications written on the subject of free market economics, this book is very old. It was published in 1946 and quotes other books as source material that are far older, some of which are centuries old. This is not at all uncommon with books on this subject. I would first of all also point out that this is true of most books about systems that wish to solve the issues of poverty. And the theories they come to are generally as outdated as the scientific books of their time. This is just as true about the work of Karl Marx about communism and the authors who describe socialism. What all these authors have in common is no way of understanding what technology would bring to the table hundreds of years past their time. The crux of this essentially being is that this book um, is old and just like the concepts, you know, basically the original free market economics concepts are also all old and they're brought up by, you know, were conceived by people who do not have the same knowledge about technology that we do now. Now, chapter seven was the relevant chapter in question. The curse of machinery. Among the most viable of all economic delusions is the belief that machines on net balance create unemployment. Destroyed a thousand times, it has risen a thousand times out of its own ashes as hardy and vigorous as ever. Whenever there is a long-continued mass unemployment, machines get the blame anew. This fallacy is still the basis of many labor union practices. The public tolerates these practices because it, is either, it either believes at bottom that the unions were right or it is too confused to see just why they were wrong. It would be rather hard to see, but this is me commenting now, it would be rather hard to see why they were wrong, because in the short term, even when capitalism was healthy, they were not wrong. It did create unemployment and therefore poverty. We go on back to the book again. The belief that machines cause unemployment when held with any logical consistency leads to preposterous conclusions. Not only must we be causing unemployment with every technological improvement we make today, but primitive man must have started causing it with the first efforts he made to save himself from the needless toil and sweat. This in of itself is preposterous. Primitive man didn't have a monetary system, this is me talking again, that forced him to work for someone else to provide for himself. The author then quotes a book from the year 1776 and eventually gets to this part. Okay, still no callers. Just have to check it every now and then because I'm reading something on the internet, so... Things could be blacker, the, for the Industrial Revolution was just in its infancy. Let us look at some of the incidents and aspects of that revolution. Let us see, for example, what happened in the stocking industry. New stocking frames, as they were introduced, were destroyed by the handicraft workmen over 1,000 in a single riot. Houses were burned, the inventors were threatened and obliged to fly for their lives. An order was not, fi not finally restored until the military had been called out and the leading rioters had been either transported or hanged. Now it is important to bear in mind that insofar as the rioters were thinking of their own immediate or even longer futures, their opposition to machines was rational. 
For William Falcon, in his history of the machines, I'm sorry, yeah, of the machine wrought hosiery manufacturers, I'm sorry, 1867, tells us that the larger part of the 50,000 English stocking knitters and their families did not fully emerge from the hunger and misery entailed by the induction, uh, introduction, yeah, introduction of the machine for the next 40 years. And I go on to say in my own comments, those damn rioters, I mean really, being angry about 50,000 people being reduced to poverty for 40 years, the nerve of some people, in the typical free market capitalist fashion, the fact that 50,000 people were reduced to a state of poverty and starvation for 40 years is simply not relevant. Why should their employer, former employer care about that? But in so, and we go back to the book, but insofar as the rioters believed, as most of them undoubtedly did, that the machine was permanently displacing men, they were mistaken. For before the end of the 19th century, the stocking industry was employing at least 100 men for every man, every man it employed at the beginning of the century. Um, so I go on to say, I am sure that was some measure of comfort to those 50,000 people who were reduced to a state of poverty for 40 years. Oh, looks what finally opened. What the heck is going on with that? Sorry about that, folks. Sometimes this uh, thing misbehaves on me and I have to turn it off. Anyway, as I was saying, oh look, my chat room is finally up. Yay. Gonna respond. Okay. Pull up my, I was just reading since my computer just did something stupid. Now, as I was saying, I'm sure that was some measure of comfort to those 50,000 people who reduced to a state of poverty for 40 years. It's all okay now, right? Imagine what 40 years of poverty and starvation would do to 50,000 families. The free market economists later would go on to point out that that's okay. Their system eventually balanced everything out. What the people who suggest this book fail to see is that we propose, this, we propose a system where nobody has to be in poverty ever and where progress further ensures this rather, ensures this rather than ensuring that incidents like the ones described in this book will continue. <coughs> the point I'm trying to get at there is the fact that in the system that they advocate, things like this are going to happen every time a new technological innovation you know, eliminates people in the workplace. This whole thing is not even necessary. We don't have to be doing this. We don't have to have these things happening. Oh, there's a new riot. There's a new depression. There's a new this. There's a new that. We could just be focusing you know, um, on using technology just to eliminate the scarcity that you know, creates the problem in the first place, but I digress. I go back to my comments. The book then goes on to make more examples of how eventually, after an initial period of poverty, the Industrial Revolution's innovations in labor would eventually create more jobs than were previously present. If you take any concern over the damage this does to the human beings out of the equation, then this could have be considered an acceptable loss. <laughs> That's kind of me being sarcastic. The author's archaic understanding of the limits of how technology could um, of how much technology could do to reduce the need for labor, if not get rid of it entirely, is clear. He does go on to point out some of the more absurd practices that were put in place to protect jobs by labor unions. Although in many cases these demands were completely unreasonable, it is a natural reaction in a society where unless you have a job, you are completely incapable of taking care of yourself. The failings of the capitalist system become more and more clear the more you read. 
Now, that's essentially me, you know, commenting. You know, what the guy was talking about in the book at that point was, you know, the various things that labor unions do. Like, uh, they were insisting that, you know, if you're going to have a truck driver come in from out of state, then the unions would insist that a local driver take the truck from them or also be involved in the trip or just silly stuff like that. And, you know, you get why. I mean, it's like these people want to be sure they're working. But a better solution to that was rather than patching it up with Band-Aids or in many cases what amounts to a full frontal lobotomy, they should have just gotten out of the scarcity system in the first place. Now, I'm going to go back to their book. One might pile up mountains of figures to show how wrong were the technophobes of the past, but it would do no good unless we understood clearly why they were wrong. For statistics and history are useless in economics unless accompanied by a basic deductive understanding of the facts. This, which means, in this case, an understanding of why the past consequences of the introduction of machinery and other labor-saving devices had to occur. Otherwise, the technophobes will assert, as they do in fact assert when you point out to them that the prophecies of their predecessors turn out to be absurd, that may, that may have been all well in the in the past, but today's conditions are fundamentally different, and now we simply cannot afford to develop any more labor-saving machinery. Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, indeed, in a syndicated newspaper column of September 19, 1945, wrote, We have reached a point today where the labor-saving devices are good only when they do not throw the worker out of his job. <coughs> so they, I guess, claim that, you know, it's ridiculous for them to, you know, ever consume, assume that, you know, te technology will eliminate labor. And, you know, after all, you know, 40 years or so, everything will be fine. <laughs> you know, man, you know, I, I really hope I don't have to wait for 40 years for this economic slump to end, or I'm definitely going to end up without my kids and, um, you know, homeless. But, oh, well, that's not the big corporation's problem, is it? Now, I'm going to go into my words again. The example that the author gives to prove that the assertions of technophobes of the past were absurd comes a bit later, and I will get to it. What I wanted to point out, however, was that the technophobes were not wrong in their predictions. They just saw the problems as being a lot closer than it was. The author goes on to erect a straw man to try and discredit them by making the absurd insinuation that people would go so far as to say that the interest of in the interest of saving jobs that trains should be abolished in favor of having men carry goods on their backs. Finally, after the typical ridicule employed by most ec Austrian economics, or economists who wish to distract from the failures in their logic, kind of like the people in the video, we finally get to the analogy that is supposed to solve all of this. Okay, drum roll, please, guys. This is the thing that's going to make it so that technology doesn't, you know, get rid of jobs. It'll all be okay, you know, as long as we do this. All right, so I'm going to get here. Theories as false as this are never held with logical consistency but they do great harm because they are held at all. Let us, therefore, try to see exactly what happens when technical improvements and labor-saving machinery are introduced. The details will vary in each instance depending upon the particular conditions that prevail in a given industry or period. But we shall assume an example that involves the main possibilities. <coughs> Suppose a clothing manufacturer learns of a machine that will make men's and women's overcoats for half as much labor as previously. He installs the machines and drops half of his labor force. This looks at first glance like a clear loss of employment, probably because it is, oh, sorry. Uh, but the machine itself required labor to make it. So here, so, um, as one offset, are jobs that would not otherwise have existed. 
So basically the concept is that because it requires labor to make machines that reduce, you know, that eliminate labor, you know, all the jobs that are lost because of the fact that you have essentially eliminated labor will be replaced by the jobs that are making the machines that eliminate the labor. Um, I'll go back to my words in my post. So here we have it. Apparently, any loss of jobs caused by automation will be fixed by jobs created by the need to manufacture the machines that do the automation. So in this instance, we are talking about sewing machines that are replacing workers in the clothing factory. The author suggests that the labor needed to create the machines will create jobs that will replace any jobs that are lost, and in fact, probably create more jobs than were there in the first place, is what it usually asserts. This logic depends entirely on the idea that whomever is making money making these machines is not also using automated technology to create the machines in the first place. The entire motive behind using machines is to raise your profits by not having to pay wages at all, and to raise efficiency because machines don't take days off, get sick, have unions, or ask for a cut of the profits that were made by their work. Machines are quite content to just be maintained. We had a name for human workers who were forced to be content with that. We called them slaves. This becomes an issue later in our modern circumstances, and I will get to it shortly. Remember that in our era, machines make machines. Ask the unemployed auto workers in my home state of Michigan about this. Let's see if my chat is still working. Still no calls. It is kind of an impromptu show. So. Um, Implying a technology does not create unemployment because it does in a monetary system. If what you're saying is true, don't you think that all businesses out there would be doing it to cut down costs? They are doing it to cut down costs. Can you explain that all monetary systems create aberrant behavior because money creates scarcity? Mm, that is very much wishful thinking, LOL. Um, yes, all businesses are doing it to cut down costs. That's kind of the point. Um, the, it's, it's happening all over the place. They're either automating or they're outsourcing. Um, let me get back to my reading here. Okay, back to reading their book. At this point, it may seem labor has suffered a net loss of employment while it is only the manufacturer, the capitalist, who has gained. But it is precisely out of these extra profits that the subsequent social gains must come. The manufacturer must use these extra profits in at least one of three ways. This is meaning the profits gained by eliminating jobs. And possibly he will use part of them in all three. One, he will use the extra profits to expand his operations by buying more machines to make more coats. Or two, he will invest the extra profits in some other industry. Or three, he will spend the extra profits on increasing his own consumption. Whichever of these three courses he takes, he will increase employment. Okay, option one is the most likely. However, in addition, he will also likely put money into research and development into ways to minimize the workforce he must employ even further and to automate his business even further. Okay, with option two, it does not create new jobs either in our modern society where most companies will also be doing what I suggested in option one. Investing in another industry is not going to create jobs if all industries have decided that they're going to eliminate the workforce as much as possible. Option three's effect on employment in a world of automation is actually minimal at best in our modern times. The fact that the guy's going out and buying yachts and all that still doesn't really solve the problem when you consider the fact that 
that people still have no freaking money. Um, and if, you, if it, the more that companies automate everything, the less it's going to really be an issue. Jobs lost will be replaced. Uh, it is only logical for business to replace human labor. Yes, it is. Um, hey, everybody, Peter Joseph is listening. Really? <laughs> well, hi, Peter. How come you never return my emails? <laughs> Well, great. Um, get in contact with me sometime. I would love to help you with content uh, for um, Zeitgeist 3. And uh, I talk to Roxanne and um, Jacques all the time, and uh, she tells me that she's dropping a line to you. Um, and I, I, I know you're really busy. So uh. Anyway, um, maybe you could ask me to co-host with you sometime on your blog talk show. I'll be more than happy to field some of these questions. Nope. That's right, folks. I am honored tonight by the fact that one of my listeners is, in fact, uh, Peter Joseph. Now, I'm going to apologize, Mr. Joseph, and the fact that this show is not as um, professional as most of my shows usually are. I just, I had to, you know, cut these people down to size. Okay. Now, we were going back to the notion that, uh, in other words, the manufacturer is a result of this economy is his profits that he did not have before. Every dollar of the amount he has saved in direct wages to former coat makers, he now has to pay out in direct, indirect wages to the makers of new machines or to workers in another capital industry or to the makers of a new house or motor car for himself or of the jewelry and furs for his wife. In any case, unless he is po a pointless hoarder, he gives indirectly as many jobs as he sees to give indirectly. Um, oh, got to see what Peter said. Sure, we will get there. Keep going. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, this equation that is supposed to create jobs, is, this is me, has already been proven to have the bottom falling out of it more and more every day. The more automation and its temporary rival outsourcing prevail as the industry standard, the less consumption on the part of the person making profits in this fashion fixes anything. This person, in turn, going out and buying products from Walmart does not exactly help workers who are put out of work by machines and people being exploited in third world countries at all. In fact, it only perpetuates this downward spiral as it gives the profits from your business to another business that is doing the same thing. This is a great game of keep away from the average person and it ensures that the rich will always be rich and the poor will always be poor. And what I mean by essentially the idea of the game of keep away is that, you know, the rich fat cat goes out and he buys stuff from another rich fat cat. The money never ends up in the hands of the average person, particularly if the, the labor force is so reduced by uh, technological and employment. There is no exchange at that point that's getting into the hands of the common people. It does not create wealth for the common people. At that point, the only people who get to consume are the rich, and the rest of us just kind of get to pay our rent and hope we survive. I'll go further. Uh, and to Peter, if you want to read the, uh, the full report I did on this today, you can go to the Zeitgeist forums to the Venus Project section and look up uh, the critique, uh, critique on the book uh, Economics in One Lesson. Um, anyway, I continue. Now, going back to his book, uh, but the matter does not and cannot rest at this stage. If this enterprising manufacturer affects great economies as compared with his competitors, Either he will begin to expand his operations at their expense, or they will start buying machines too. Again, more work will be given to the makers of the machines. Okay. As stated previously, I already debunked this point. Um, machines will be making machines. It's already happening. 
that that's why I brought up to the people that the free market economists have a tendency to forget the fact that the most of the people that they're reading, the Ayn Rands and the you know, various other authors, um, essentially um, that their you know their word is God, and you know honestly, it's it's the truth. Having hung out with these people, um, they were making decisions based on archaic notions that just don't apply anymore. So. Um, now, I'm going to read what I said. Already debunked, more profits will be given to the makers of the machines. Makers of the machines. Some will be work, uh, will be work, some of that work will be given to those who maintain them. But if those people are building machines to automate your business, you can be damn sure they are also building machines to automate the construction of their own products. Huge leaps and bounds in this technology have been made since 1946 when this book was published. Um, and that's honestly, it's, that's kind of the real crux of the matter, is that the, these guys are trying to debunk the theory that technology creates unemployment with their uh, book from 1946 that supposedly states that this never happens and it's this big fallacy and it always balances itself out <laughs> in 40 years, you know, 40 years of, as I said earlier in the show, 40 years of you know, poverty, no big deal, don't worry, everything will level out. Um, anyway. Uh, but competition and production, this is back to their book, but, but competition and production will then also begin to force down the price of overcoats. There will no longer be as great a profits for those who adopt the new machines. The rate of profit of the manufacturers using the new machine will begin to drop. While the manufacturers who, still, sorry, who have still not adopted the machine may now make no profit at all. The savings, in other words, will begin to be passed along to the buyers of overcoats, to the consumers. I want to take a moment to uh, comment a little bit on the, the magic number that is consumers when it comes to free market economists. Okay, they believe that the consumers are the guiding factor that they will solve everything. Now, the, the reason that I bring this up actually is because I, I worked with Senator Mike Gravel in his campaign for president, and uh, one of the biggest point about it, points about it is that uh, the, the same people who don't like the idea of direct democracy, which is what the National Initiative for Democracy was, it was essentially you know, you put up referendums and ballots and things of that nature to, uh, to make new laws and to repeal laws and to essentially run your government. They have them in Switzerland. They have them on the state level. Now, before I digress too far, the same people who don't trust the voters, they don't like majority rule, they don't trust the voters to make decisions about their own country, do trust the consumer, which is generally made up of the same people, to make intelligent decisions that are somehow supposed to affect the outcome of business practices. You know, like, the, if we have a totally free market economy, then, you know, the consumers will balance everything because they won't buy stuff from people who do bad things to the economy. Right. So they don't trust people with making their own laws, you know, things directly impact them, you know, themselves. But they do trust people with making these decisions as consumers to balance out an economy. Uh, doesn't make any sense to me, and it never did, even when I was a libertarian. Uh, cyclical consumption, this is me, has already broken down. You'll be lucky if the consumers in question can afford to buy the overcoats at even the reduced prices that the author assumes will happen. In many cases, industries clearly work together to ensure high profits by not competing too fiercely to keep the overall prices and therefore profits of their products high. Remember the artificially ga created gas shortage? Gas stations completely by a diff uh, um, competed by a difference of a few cents at best. Gas companies that were price gouging figured out that people don't just want gasoline, they need it. So they competed by maybe a few cents at a time. The prices did eventually drop, but not because of the reaction of the consumers. That would kind of be the free market explanation. Uh, but instead, 
because of the fact that it started to bring attention to alternative sources of energy that we should be using. All of a sudden, people were interested in doing this. Now, this is the advocation, actually, like, for example, because of the gas prices, friends of mine were doing shows on the Internet about the fact that you can convert your car right now, without even that much money, to run on restaurant grease. You know, restaurant grease, the thing that you're paid to get rid of. You know, you pay to get rid of at a restaurant. You can go to a restaurant, get restaurant grease, buy this device, attach it to your car, set up a distillery for it essentially in your garage. It takes about the size of a kitchen table. And run your car on it. And people started doing this. That's the reason that the gas companies dropped the prices, because they don't want people to be looking at that stuff. You know, and I said in my, in my statement, this is another example of how capitalism, the monetary system, the profit motive bring only enough progress to ensure more profits and not to benefit mankind. The huge efforts that gas companies go to to ensure that the public never finds out about better technologies are a perfect example. If you guys want more information on that, uh, my suggestion to you would be to watch the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? Uh, they go, you know, basically, like, for example, the batteries that could make the electric cars go 500 miles on a one-hour recharge. The company that was developing was bought out by Texaco, and they, of course, shut down the project. They don't want anybody to have a car that runs for 500 miles on a one-hour charge. Um, now, <clears throat> further reading their book. But as overcoats are now cheaper, more people will buy them. This means that though it takes fewer people to make the same number of overcoats as before, more overcoats are now being made than before. If the demand for overcoats is what economists call elastic, that is, if a fall in the price of overcoats causes a larger total amount of money to be spent on overcoats than previously, then more people may be employed even in the making overcoats than before the new labor-saving machine was introduced. So then I go back to my words. So here we have the assumption that more people are going to buy coats just because they are cheaper and more of the already debunked notion that more labor will be created by making machines that eliminate labor. Um, I put in quotations, or in parentheses, man, it's hard to even type that. It frankly is just so stupid. That essentially the idea that machine, you know, more labor will be created by ma making machines that eliminate labor. The, the idea that this is going to totally eliminate the need for labor at all just fails on these people. Now, I uh, continue, it does not address the fact that, what, that technology now has the ability to remove so many jobs that consumers will not have jobs to buy the products in the first place, which uh, I might add causes the service sector that sells products to hire less and lay off more, that in turn causes even more unemployment and therefore causes even less products being purchased, which in turn causes even more unemployment. Uh, where, I live in, where I live in Michigan now, this downward spiral is extremely obvious. Uh, the industry was totally annihilated when they got rid of the um, auto industry. So then just as Peter Joseph points out in his presentation, that floods the service sector with the unemployed, uh, which in turn, of course, means the service sector, uh, you know, gets, they get too many people they can't hire anymore. And then nobody buys anything because everybody's unemployed. Well, then the service sector has to lay off even more people. And it's just, it's, it's just crashing. Uh, it's so bad in Michigan that the socialist programs uh, that are put in place like welfare to try to save this are buckling. Actually, the, the state of Michigan nearly shut down last year. So the funny thing about this, as I had said previously in another show, is that it exposes the failures of socialism that uses money at the same time that it uh, exposes the weaknesses of capitalism. Now, uh, going back to their uh, book, what machines do to repeat is to bring an increase in production and an increase in the standard of living. They may do this in either of two ways. They do it by making goods cheaper for consumers, as in our illustration of the overcoats, 
or they do it by increasing wages because they increase the productivity of the workers. In other words, they either increase money wages or by reducing prices, they increase the goods and services that the same money wages will buy. Sometimes they do both. What actually happens will depend in large part upon the monetary policy pursuing in a, uh, pursued in a country. <laughs> you know, like our beautiful monetary policy. But in any case, they say, uh, machines, inventions, and discoveries increase real wages. I'm going to refrain from laughing at this as much as I did when I read it in the book. This might have been true at one point, but at one time there was actually a work ethic that doesn't really exist anymore. And that work ethic stated that if, you're, you know, if, you're, if you were doing well, then you shared with your people. You just don't do that anymore. I keep thinking, actually, you know, and I would suggest, Peter, you should put this quote. I, I can't remember what the movie is from, uh, but it, it had, I want to say, Michael Douglas, and it was talking about business, and this guy was giving a lecture to students. He says, greed works. Uh, you know, basically just glorifying greed. You know, greed works. Use greed in your business practices. Um, anyway, um, now I'm going to go back to my statements. This assumes, first of all, that an employer is just going to raise the wages he pays out because the worker's productivity is increased. As the ethics in business are overthrown by more and more creative applications, yet Wall Street, uh, more and more creative applications of greed, the opposite is true. Outsourcing more than anything else proves that this entire notion is a fallacy. That's right, folks. They're not just going to raise your wages just because. And in fact, they're going out of their way to make sure that the opposite is true. Okay, now, let's talk about what outsourcing really is for a moment. Essentially, with the advent of superior technology, the worker has to compete with automated machines. An employer in a free market economy will have no regulations at all to tell them what they have to pay or what benefits or even living conditions their workers can demand, or working conditions for that matter. The corporate elite have already learned their lesson on how to avoid unions. Where do you find workers who are willing to work for whatever you will give them that are satisfied with just enough money to survive? Uh, will I be taking any calls later? Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, especially if Peter will call. <laughs> anyway, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, in, you know, where, this is back to uh, where you look for workers who are willing to do this. Okay. Uh, well, in nations that are desperate for any kind of work, Bangladesh, India, Mexico, and China, just to name a few, uh, the workers in these countries are more than willing to accept substandard near-slavery lifestyle because it's slightly better than the starving-to-death lifestyle they had previously. <laughs> that was kind of a gem. Um, it, it, for more information also, I would suggest that you read Walmart or watch Walmart. Uh, the best, uh, no, I'm sorry, the, the high price, no, I'm sorry, the high cost of low prices. That was it, yeah. So that book, like totally, or not book, that movie totally details just how bad the working conditions, mostly in China, they, they go to China and they look at the working conditions of the people that work, you know, for the companies that make stuff for Walmart. Uh, and they basically live like slaves. I mean, they live in really, really bad living conditions that they're forced to, to, to get, as in they take them out of their, you know, their paychecks and everything. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, you want to use some examples. They actually go there. They look at the working conditions. And, and that's even tame in comparison to some of the other stuff I've seen. But anyway, uh, going back to my words, once again, the same as it was here in the United States during the Great Depression. This is like, once again, you know, going back to the idea that you know, people are willing to accept the substandard near-slavery lifestyle uh, because it is slightly better than the starving-to-death lifestyle they had previously. And the reason why, you know, just like, you know, during the you know, Great Depression, Jacques Fresco's childhood, 
It is only a matter of time before the global economy that free trade creates will force Americans to accept the same standard of living as their competition or have no jobs at all. Okay. Now, free market economists, of course, always justify this by saying, oh, but nobody is forcing these people to work for them. They could just go work somewhere else, as if people who live in impoverished nations have a choice. They have no choice of where they are employed when they went, uh, uh, I'm sorry, they have no more choice of where they are employed than the people did during Jacques Fresco's childhood during the Great Depression. Scarcity of employment always leads to abuse of the workforce by the employers who realize they hold all the cards. This is exactly what was going on that caused labor unions to come into being in the first place. The only means by which labor could force companies to change their policies was to ask their political figures to pass laws to protect them or to strike. Striking would force the employers to straighten up or lose profits when their production is halted. However, once a certain level of poverty is reached, striking is no longer feasible. People living paycheck to paycheck cannot afford to stop working for any reason. Believe me, I'm doing that right now. To imply that workers can choose not to work and therefore not feed or care for their families is like implying that a gunman who is threatening your family is doing no wrong because you could always just choose to let him shoot them. Anarcho-capitalists, <clears throat> anarcho of course, claim that there is no coercion. But, but threatening to take someone's job and therefore their life is most certainly coercion. I remember a time in question when I had planned out a, uh, um, a vacation and my employer just decided that I was going to have to work, even though I had taken it off a year in advance. And they basically just hit you with the, well, uh, if you want to have a job, you're going to have to do this, because they wanted to take a vacation. You know, this is more of that dictatorship thing that Jack Fresco talks about when he says that you subject yourself to that every time you go to work for somebody else. And uh, that's an example. Um, yes, anarcho-capitalists is an oxymoron. More to the point, actually, I'd say that most of them are morons. Sorry for being so cruel. I just, I am so tired of talking to those people. I spend pages and pages of it on the forums. Uh, and you just, you, even a lot of anarchist friends of mine are sick of them. So, now, the choices are eliminated when the elite get together and work together to create a situation that collectively forces the labor force to accept a lower standard of living. It benefits Chrysler, for example, if they agree to work with Ford and GM to ensure that no worker can expect to be paid more than 50 cents an hour to make car parts. This is part of that thing, a concept I talked about in an earlier show that I call a cooperative monopoly. Okay. Um, a cooperative monopoly is not a true monopoly, but this is because remember, free market economists always say that you know, monopolies can't happen in a free market. It's when a group of fat cats decide to get together and change the standard, just like they did for the price of oil. They do the same thing for how much are we going to accept for this job. Okay. Now, um, technology also plays a serious part in this. There was a time when the overhead that would be added by sending our production overseas and then selling your products locally would be too, you know, would be too much to make it worth it. Advances in shipping technology have long since eliminated this complication. Uh, it's just too easy now to outsource. Uh, free market capitalists tend to blame all the problems of outsourcing on government regulation intervention. And they claim that without government, these problems would vanish. The part that I always find hilarious about this contradiction is that these same people are often the same ones complaining about the fact that our government is owned and operated by corrupt corporations in the first place. The government is a corporate-owned institution. The notion that, that it is doing anything but facilitating the corporation's ability to exploit the common man and the workforce is absurd. It is equally absurd that this 
um, would it just all go away without government. With no regulations at all, it only makes it easier to at least make, make having money more powerful, not less. The same is true of the media. Free market capitalists, of course, favor no regulation of anything, including the media. So if companies want to control public opinion, all they have to do is buy it in the form of radio and TV stations. Once again, being DTV, I'm going to recommend another documentary. Watch Orwell Rolls in His Grave um, or Outfoxed if you want to see about just how powerful this is. Those are two very good documentaries on the subject. This minimizes the ability of any politician intent on challenging the establishment, like my friend and mentor Senator Mike Gravel or Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich, from ever electing, getting elected to challenge them. It also keeps pesky news outlets from reporting it when their reports are found to be dangerous or created through inhuman, inhumane work practices. I uh, once did a feature on this. There was an uh, episode of one thing brought up as uh, basically Fox News Company. They did a show called The Investigators, and this group of people investigated this milk company that was knowingly putting bad hormones in the milk that would harm people. So the uh, reaction of the milk company was to buy the radio, the TV station in question to prevent that show, that basically that show from coming on. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. I believe it's called Fox Exposed or Unbelievable or something like that. I'd have to find it again. I used to have it downloaded. I don't anymore. Now, this is an important point because people who are always concerned about us, you know, being fascists, I have to bring this up. Okay. Fascism that is created by capitalism gone awry is even more insidious than that created by communism or socialism. The reason why is that at least in a communist or socialist state, the control is obvious. In a capitalist society, they need no guns or tanks to control you. They simply buy that control. And the more free the market is, the more they are free to do this. Now, this is an important point, people, and it has to do with actually something that was brought up in the earlier part of Zeitgeist like Adenum, where he says, you know, there are more, like, no more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. Okay, the people who have so much faith, uh, so much faith um, in this constitutional republic, I still deal with these people constantly because of my former position in the Ron Paul revolution. Okay don't understand that their government structure is, is inevitably going to be corrupted. And in fact, well, it, it basically is. And it's owned by the people that they claim they're defending when they claim, you know, that they're defending the free market. Okay. Cap the fascism that we have now was purchased. Okay. Uh, my opponent for Congress, Candace Miller, takes a lot of money from uh, Halliburton, and as a result, come to think of it, imagine that she always votes in favor of the war. She never votes for, in favor of coming home. Uh, inevitably, you know, and they, of course, the free market capitalists never want to ever tell anybody they can't do anything. So they don't want to make it illegal for you to bribe politicians. And the thing that I want to bring up about that is that even the Romans and all of their barbarity recognized the danger of that. If you were caught bribing a senator in Rome, they would execute you. Now, to get back to outsourcing, I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine from Mexico. We hung out online a lot playing video games together. At the time, I was watching a lot of Lou Dobbs on CNN and his coverage of outsourcing of American jobs and how it was destroying the local economies. I asked him what he thought of it. He, t he in turn asked me what I thought about it. I told him that the companies are claiming that the reason for outsourcing was that Americans had no work ethic and were lazy. He started laughing at me on the voice chat, so I asked him what was so funny. He went on to tell me that there were just as many lazy people in Mexico as anywhere else. 
He pointed out that they, what they really wanted Americans to compete with was the Mexicans' desperation and therefore willingness to accept whatever scraps from the table that corporate America was willing to throw at them for working long days with no benefits. Uh, yes, uh, outfoxed Murdoch's war on journalism. Watch it. It talks about the, just how bad it is. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you know, people are always scared about 1984, you know, and the idea that, you know, there were always, you know, if you remember the guy in 1984, his job was to essentially change the news uh, as per the notes that were passed down from the, the superiors. It, at Fox, Rupert Murdoch and the people that worked for him passed notes down about what is going to get reported, what presidential candidates are going to get talked about, uh, and more to the point, what you're going to be, um, what you're going to be allowed to talk about. And if you violate this, they fire you. Okay. Now, um, as I was saying, he went on to describe the average standard of living in most Mexicans he knew who ended up working in American-owned factories. Needless to say, it was not a house with two-car garage and a cable TV and a refrigerator full of groceries. The conditions in some of the other countries for workers that are essentially underbidding workers in other countries are in many cases far worse. In some countries, parents sell their children into slavery in factories where they are literally chained to the floor to prevent them from running away. Uh, products made in these conditions can, of course, then in turn be offered at extremely competitive prices that no business can stay afloat and compete with, so they can, quote-unquote, choose to either go bankrupt or do business with these companies. Um, when he was describing the Mexicans, he basically said, you know, you, you live in a one-bedroom house because that's all you can afford with all of your kids and your wife and all of your brother's kids and his wife, because that's all you can afford. That's, you know, those are examples of just how bad it can get in Mexico. Um, now, even more appalling than this is the attitude of some free market economists on this issue. I remember being kicked off the air of a libertarian capitalist internet TV station, it's actually Ron Paul TV, once for playing a documentary that exposed the inhumane, uh, inhuman labor conditions that American businesses were exploiting to maximize profits. I believe I was actually playing The Corporation. It's not a very good documentary. It was recommended to me by somebody in Microbell's campaign that I worked with. Uh, the argument that ensued between me and the person who did the kicking included him making fun of me for caring about people in third world countries and calling me a bleeding heart liberal. Um, mind you, this is the same person who said it was wrong uh, of the United States to intervene in the matter of slavery. It's actually really hilarious to me, but I know some constitutional people who actually believe that we should go all the way back to slavery. I usually bring this up, too, because they tend to enshrine the founding fathers and personal property rights, uh, you know, because after all, the founding fathers had a great idea of personal property. It included owning other human beings. In fact, my favorite of the founding fathers, the one that I like the most out of all of the, that group of people, is Thomas Jefferson, and he owned like hundreds. In fact, I believe he owned more than anybody else. Now... When you speak of these things in these circles, it's like you're speaking blasphemy for even bringing it up. It's ironic because the same people that these same people claim the consumer will somehow bring balance to the economic forces that will prevent these kinds of exploitations. I kind of covered this earlier, but how are they to do this if they are not informed? If it is in fact considered inappropriate to do so, even when people are informed, rarely does the consumer who is driven by the same scarcity-induced greed ever inclined, is ever inclined to shop differently. The average citizen of the United States is well aware of the abuses that go into the production of products offered in places like Walmart, and now most department stores. And what's worse is the industry standard continues to drop to slavery or automation. Products that, uh, that are not produced in this fashion become hard to find even if you want to buy them. 
And as the economy falters further, eventually you are once again given that quote-unquote choice of either buying these products or not having food uh, and other necessities at all. Yep, in that situation now myself, because yes, I shop at places that sell this stuff, and I, I have no choice. I, I really don't. Uh, not like as in I don't, you know, I might lose, uh, you know, my expensive cell phone or something, as in I either do this or I don't have anything. Um, once again, people, if you want an, a proof positive of capitalism's failures, come live in Michigan for a while. Now, back on topic. The notion that wages will increase somehow because of all this innovation is silly. The entire motive behind using machines in the first place is to eliminate wages entirely. The notion that taxation and tariffs are the entire motive for outsourcing is equally weak in comparison to the huge profits made by employing workers for 10 cents an hour with no benefits. Not only because of the differences in the economies of the country, but because of the difference in currency values. The simple fact that companies are actively seeking to employ people in these countries on a vast scale is proof positive that this notion is another fallacy. Get used to that word when debating anarchists, anarcho-capitalists, etc. They use it about as often as the word the. Finally, on to the epically outdated conclusion. If we have devoted considerable space to this issue, it is because our conclusions regarding the effects of new machinery, inventions, and discoveries on employment, production, and welfare are crucial. If we are wrong about these, there are a few things in economics which we are likely to be right. That this is the part that is one, the one part that is accurate. Because they're wrong. <laughs> they, yeah. Uh, and that is why our resource-based economy is now crucial. The previous notions of economics are no longer apply anymore than the elevator man applies to the operation of an elevator. In closing, this book not only fails to address the issues of the breakdown of cyclical consumption caused by technological unemployment, it fails to make any points that are still relevant to what our future holds. Yes, some technophobes panicked too early, but the technophobes of the 1930s probably didn't even have the capacity to imagine or even understand just how much powerful technology uh, how much more powerful technology has become since then, just as the authors of Austrian economics, communism, and, so and socialism were equally ignorant. And i got to point that out all the time, and I'd have to say, Peter, I really hope that you focus a little bit more on the weaknesses of communism and socialism in Zeitgeist 3, because as a libertarian who's arguing in favor of the Zeitgeist movement, I constantly have to listen to that, because they don't ever bother to do the research into what problems Jacques has with it, and just because we attack the free market, they assume we must be this or that. Anyway, um, there was a time when Austrian economics could function, but the notion that it would create a utopia of wealth for everyone was always questionable. And then the more advanced technology becomes coupled with more greedy corporations become, in its application, the more this gap will be created. Austrian economics, uh, econo uh, economists, once again, this is not how I normally do my radio show, the road to serfdom, now I often quote the road to serfdom, but fail to see that uh, although socialism can create new serfs, capitalism is headed down that road as well. The workforce is going to be so desperate to make itself useful that they will have to accept lower and lower standards of living to compete with machines, and eventually the vast majority will be completely obsolete altogether. The solution that would be offered that people who cannot find work should just open businesses of their own falls flat on its face when you consider that the whole reason many people are not employed in the first place is because nobody is buying products because nobody is employed. In conditions such as these, quote, uh, in parentheses, if you can find the capital to start your own business in the first place, how can a small businessman hope to survive? They can't. Ask the vanishing, mostly self-employed middle class about this. Um, that's actually in response to a friend of mine who said, you know, well, why don't you start your own business? That's what Austrian economics says. I point out that that's really not practical at all. Okay. Um, 
Austrian economists often quote the. I'm sorry, uh, going back a little bit. I, the solution that would have been that would be offered to people who cannot find work. Oh, I already went through that too. Now, uh, I know this post was long-winded, but it is a complicated issue. I have been in contact with the people uh, whose YouTube video started all of this, and will be pursuing a more formal debate. Uh, I have suggested to them. I have friends who um, uh, helped me moderate debates between presidential candidates. And um, I'm going to ask him. I mean, he's not a supporter of the Venus Project, but he is a supporter of um, impartial um, argument. So I'm hoping that he will be willing to take up the cause of moderating this debate. But I don't really know. I mean, the, the more I've, I've dealt with these people, I know that they've read my report. And um, I, I don't know what they're going to say about it. They make a lot of YouTube videos um, refuting zeitgeist. And um, we'll be interested to see if they actually um, can put their money where their mouth is. Unfortunately, I didn't think I was going to get all this interest, so I only made my show today for four minutes. Um, let me pull up my Blog Talk Radio switchboard and see if anybody wants to call in. Dun dun dum. Three four seven nine four five seven seven four seven. Otherwise. Uh, People who want to get in touch with me about the Venus Project, in my conversations with Jacques and Roxanne and the time that they came up to meet me here in Michigan, I became or was given the permission to call myself a spokesman for the Venus Project. Uh, since then, I have spent a lot of time answering questions for people. And I know that uh, you know, Jacques and Roxanne and, you know, and Peter obviously can't be available all the time. Um, I do happen to have a lot of free time on my hands because I am a stay-at-home father. Uh, and uh, I've been told that I'm pretty good at this whole debating thing. So uh, um, if you guys have any questions, uh, my personal information is available. I use Skype as my phone, um, as in it, is, it has an actual phone number. Um, I'm on it all the time. Uh, if you have Skype, VTV115 is my Skype information. Um, another example, actually, of a technology rendering the monetary system irrelevant because uh, for the price that I used to pay for my phone once a month, I pay once a year now for unlimited calling on Skype. <sighs> Media at, oh, okay. That'd be awesome, Peter. Um, once again, you caught me in kind of a goofy mood. I'm just kind of replay, uh, replying to some people on YouTube, but I'm generally a lot more serious on my show. Um, to give you some background on who I am, uh, I worked with Senator Mike Gravel in his campaign for president. I was a libertarian activist, and uh, I have since moved on, um, converted out of that. So the asset that I brought to the table was that I have a lot of convention, or, you know, connections with various groups, political groups, and uh, I know really well how to argue um, uh, with free market economists because I used to be one. And... Um, I had to debate a lot on the war of the convention for the Libertarian Party. And uh, so that's what I offer, uh, other than the gift of gab and the knowledge of how a lot of these internet networks work. Um, I'd like to be involved in any whatever fashion you can bring me, even if it's just a matter of you know developing content, uh, writing things out. I'm a really good blogger. Uh, things of that nature, I'd be more than happy to, to dedicate my time to that. So. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there will be, obviously, the, um, the archive. 
And uh, this show is drawing to a close. Uh, if people still want to talk to me, I'm going to stick around. And um, I will be in the chat room for a little while longer. Um, I really could do that. I definitely could lecture. The problem is only that my money, my money situation is so horrible. Um, I will talk a little bit more about this in the chat room because the chat room will stay open even though my show is getting ready to cut off. Sometimes it lets people still continue to hear you. I will continue to talk, and then we'll be see if it does that. But yes, all uh, Blog Talk Radio shows are available on download. Um, they will be available on archives. Um, oh, the slideshow. Yeah, I thought it already was for presentation purposes available. But uh, can you guys still hear me? Let me see. Can you guys still hear me or not? Um, if not, I'm not going to bother typing. <laughs> okay. Well, so much for that then. Well, draft. Okay. Oh. Peter, can you please give me that email again?
Peter Joseph, listen to my show. Yeah, you gotta you gotta wait a little bit.
Ta-da! Insta! <laughs> Testing! Insta! Yeah! Okay. Alright, testing to see if this works so I can figure out if I can do these things on YouTube or not. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is obviously not really going to get used.
Okay, looks like I got the uh, video player working. Let me test something. I'm going to test and see if I can play stuff and have it recorded on here. Hey, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, I'm just going to be reading from the book tonight solo. Uh, the person who was going to be with me unfortunately could not due to personal reasons. Um, give me just one quick second and I'll be right back. All right, I apologize for that. So tonight on tonight's edition of V Radio, we will continue to be reading The Best That Money Can't Buy, continuing on with Chapter 4. Um, I am going to, <laughs> sorry about that, turn that off, there. Anyway, um, as I was saying, we're going to continue at Chapter 4. Um, in the event that anybody has any questions, they can call in using the call-in line that is there. I believe I started the chat successfully, if anybody would like to join. Um, anybody Okay, looks like I got the uh, video player working. Let me test something. test and see if I can play stuff and have it recorded on here. Hey, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, I'm just going to be reading from the book tonight solo. Uh, the person who was going to be with me, unfortunately, could not do the personal reasons. Um, Give me just one quick second and I'll be right back.
Hey, this is actually uh, my first recorded YouTube. Um, I usually use Blog Talk Radio, uh, but I decided I wanted to post a uh, video response to uh, what these guys have been saying about Jacques Fresco and the uh, Venus Project in general. Um, I actually did a really long uh, post refuting the book that they suggest in the beginning of this video. Um, you can read the post at if you go to the Zeitgeist forums, you can. If you can't find that normally, just uh, Google search the Zeitgeist movement. Go to the English forums, and in the Venus Project section, you will see a post entitled "Critique of the Book." Uh, I believe it was called uh, "Economics in One Lesson." Um, I basically went and got the PDF of the book, and more specifically, the analysis of the uh, stuff that he was suggesting. Earlier in one of his videos, um, he had suggested this book, and then in the debates and the comments, he suggests that you know the reason that he didn't touch on uh, technological unemployment is because supposedly it's covered in this book. Uh, the book in question basically tries to say that the idea that technology creates unemployment is a fallacy. Uh, the book itself is based on archaic notions and incomplete understandings of you know, the way technology is today, obviously, because it was written in 1946. This isn't really uncommon at all uh, to those sorts of arguments. A lot of the Austrian economic stuff comes from really a, a really long time ago and therefore was conceived by people who don't know anything about the way technology is now. Um, <clears throat> in addition to this, uh, I did a blog talk radio show about the subject um, where I basically read the post and I elaborate on it a little bit more. I was lucky enough, actually, that Peter Joseph tuned in and um, shared in my uh, show a little bit, at least in the chat room. I'm going to apologize a little bit for the unprofessional uh, nature of that um, recording because I was just kind of in a strange mood and was really just kind of an impromptu show. Um, so please feel free to check that out. And... Um, it is now my intention, and now that I know that I can do these videos a little bit easier, that I will be posting more of them. Um, I don't have a webcam. I don't really use one, so they're never going to have any visual aspect. It's just going to be audio. I may occasionally post pictures or perhaps like signs or whatever just for the sake of being silly, but that's about it. Um, largely, though, what I would tell people is that um, if you, you know, just even the guys who do these videos say that you really have to do your own homework, and that's very much the case. The majority of the stuff that they say in these videos where they're trying to debunk zeitgeist is highly just immature, unprofessional, uh, making fun of people kind of stuff that doesn't really prove anything. Um, one of them, uh, his name is Jeff, actually he went ahead and challenged me to a debate because of the statements I had made on the zeitgeist forums and my willingness to do so. Uh, I haven't heard anything more about that since then. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they plan on making more videos where they just sit in front of their, you know, camera and arrogantly look on at the people that are watching and um, presume that everybody's just going to listen to them. So, and uh, I guess we'll see what comes of all of this. And uh, like I said, you know, check out B Radio on Blog Talk Radio.
Hi, uh, this is V, VTV. I'm Levere13 on YouTube. Um, I actually did a large analysis, uh, large, just a long analysis of the book that they mentioned at the beginning of this uh, video um, that the, one of the guys in the video had suggested would refute the idea that technology creates unemployment. Uh, you can see that if you go to the Zeitgeist forums. In the Venus Project section, you will find a thread entitled A Critique of the Book Economics in One Lesson. Um, I give a lot of details there. I also did a blog talk radio show on the subject that you can see. You can find the links to that there. My blog talk radio show is called B Radio. Uh, the links to the archives I, I post um, in a sticky section of the Venus Project section of the Zeitgeist forums. Um, to sum up, though, the biggest point that I debunked is that uh, these guys basically claim that this book uh, debunks the idea that technology creates unemployment. Um, they don't really talk about cyclical consumption, which you know, for being a couple people who claim to be critiquing the orientation presentation, I, I find it kind of funny considering that you go to like two minutes and 42 seconds of it and explains what the problems with the breakdown of cyclical consumption are. And essentially what that is, is just that the, uh, when employment is removed by technology, inevitably there's less money in the system. Uh, people are buying less products because they don't have jobs. Um, and uh, as a result, the economy just begins a downward spiral. Now the book that they suggest uh, talks about the fact that previously there had always been people who would act like the sky was falling and, you know, that uh, technology was going to replace labor. And um, there were a lot of people who rioted and did various rash things because of this, you know, early on in, you know, the history of America. But what the book basically suggests is that the reason you don't have to fear that technology is going to take your job is because any device that is created to remove the need for labor will then in turn create jobs because then you're going to have to find people to make these devices that remove the need for labor. Now, this concept entirely depends on the notion that the people who are making the machines that automate the you know, the things in question that eliminated the jobs in the first place are not also using automated machines to make the machines that are doing it. Um, it, it does not really touch on the issue at all. Uh, it just try to and it tries to dance around it with this, you know, excuse that is not really going to, it's not going to work. Their solution is not going to work um, because of the fact that technology is making machines make machines uh, better more efficient than any human worker is capable of doing, at least, you know, and more specifically, cheaper, because uh, hiring a machine to do something really just amounts to the fact that the machine just wants to be maintained. Human beings might ask for a gasp, a, you know, a wage or, you know, some kind of compensation for what they're doing. Um, so overall, the, the major flaw of free market capitalism that is not often addressed is the fact that cyclical consumption is being broken down by the fact that people don't have jobs and therefore are not buying products. When they don't buy products, the employers don't have money to keep people employed. When the people who uh, you know, were employed are no longer employed, as we already stated, they don't buy products. When companies don't have consumers buying their products, they lay off more workers. 
those laid-off workers, of course, don't buy products, so it's just a downward spiral that eventually leads to collapse. And the notion that somehow jobs are going to be created out of thin air just because of the fact that you have automated something else is an archaic notion. It just doesn't apply anymore. Because of the fact that every industry is seeking to automate or outsource their jobs. And they're only outsourcing for the time being because at the moment it is actually a viable solution that is cheaper than automation. As soon as that you know, ends, when eventually robots are advanced enough to the point where they are more efficient and more reliable than even workers who are so desperate for work in third world countries that can be exploited by big corporations, then that will end too. It is not really a question of 